Welcome to this episode of Upfront with me, Simon Jordan. Before we get started, I wanted to give you a few details about this recording with Eddie Jones. At the point we conducted this interview, Eddie was still in post as Australian head coach. As you'll hear later on, I wanted to question him about the rumours suggesting he'd been interviewed for the Japan job whilst coaching Australia at the World Cup. Eddie subsequently resigned as Australia head coach a few days after recording with me. And during this episode, you'll get a valuable insight into his mentality about the conditions he was working in and draw your own conclusions as to why he ended up making that decision to leave his role. During the course of the interview, you will hear me relentlessly ask him, are you going to be staying with Australia? Also during the interview, you'll hear me accuse him of being a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. Someone that says they're staying and then leaves 24 hours, is the ultimate riddle wrapped up in enigma. I hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I enjoyed my time with Eddie. Going to Australia to do a three-month campaign and saying you can win the World Cup is crazy. And we're a long way behind, and, and that's the challenge for, for Rugby Australia. What's your hopes for, for Marcus Smith? He's reasonably good at the club level, yeah. but they make him out to be a superstar. Yeah. Well, there's no offer from Japan. Right. Let's, let's be clear about right. that. There's no offer. And that's probably the weakness I've had, that I never want to compromise like that. I always want them to play well. With two World Cup finals and two losses, do you think you're a winner? It doesn't really matter what people think. It matters what you think, you know. I am what I am. This is Upfront with me, Simon Jordan. I believe there are a lot of vacuous, uninformed, unchallenged opinions out there. I want to get to the bottom line and cut through the nonsense. So with this podcast with William Hill, I'm going to get people with strong views who think they can stand them up to proper scrutiny. There's a good chance I might learn something along the way. And more importantly, so might you. Joining me in today's episode, one of the most recognisable coaches on the international rugby stage. Currently in his second spell back with Australia, he's a man well known here on these shores, winning multiple Six Nations titles and leading England to the 2019 World Cup final. Eddie Jones, welcome to Upfront. Hey, Simon. I'm good, mate. Listen, I have to say, in these conversations, what I always try to do is find some jeopardy, and we'll find some jeopardy naturally. But the irony of you is most of the quotes that the producers and the researchers have put forward to me about things that you've said, I pretty much agree with everything you've said. <laughs> so we're going to find some accord, but we'll also find some jeopardy, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, listen, mate, one of the first things that we, what I try to do is get under the bonnet of the person and understand what made them what created them, where they came from, what their background was. Well, I suppose it always goes back to your, your childhood. Yep. You know, I was uh, a Japanese mother, yep. Australian father, uh, both had pretty tough lives. Yep, I bet that. Mother yep. was one of the probably one of the first Japanese to come to Australia. So I was a half Japanese, half Australian yep. growing up in you know, white Australia. So I had, to, I had to find a way to fit in. Yep. And it was through sport. You know, I was a reasonable cricketer, yep. reasonable rugby league and rugby union player. And then from that, um, I got the opportunity to coach. You, you talk about the multi-ethnicity background. Did racism play any part in some of the challenges that you had in life? It wasn't really racism as such. It was more, how can I fit in? Um, you know, how can I be one of the... Because when you're young, you want to be one of the boys. You know, you want to be in the... In the, in the group, click. In yeah. the click. Yeah. So to do that, I had to be reasonably good at sport. Um, and I just, and I wasn't, you know, physically I didn't have any talents, you know, five foot eight, yep. uh, not fast twitch. So then my, the only way I could be competitive was to be super competitive. You know, right. have a bit of a mouth. Right. Uh, think about the game, uh, really strategize about the game. And, and then that gave me an opportunity to coach further down the track. But the characteristics that that seem to make you a very single-minded, determined person that 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 has very definite views. Did they exhibit themselves as a young man? Did you did you have that trait? Was it brought into you by your parents? Any of the travails and adversities that happened in your parents' lives and the challenges that they had start to make a young Eddie have this very definite worldview that you seem to have at times? Well, I, I think one of the things that I recall was. My father was went to Vietnam, yep. uh, and my mother was at home with the kids, three kids, and we had a quite a big yard. And, and she asked the RSL to come and cut the grass, and they knocked on the door, and they took one look at it and said, "We're not cutting your grass." 
Right. So, and she just said, oh, we'll have to cut it ourselves then. So that was probably one of the most significant things I remember, just get on with it, mm -hmm. you know, find a way to get on with it, find a way to, 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 to get the job done. Um, and that, that really stuck with me. I got a, I got a, an observation here that when you were younger, you were playing cricket and you were playing rugby league at school, but that rugby union wasn't something you particularly entertained or had a, an empathy or a relationship with due to it normally being paid by privileged private school boys, which <laughs> this manifests itself later on. And we know in the England set up, yeah, well, but is that, is that something that's true? Yeah. Well, rugby's always been, yeah, the, the game of the elite, yeah. hasn't it? In most countries, maybe not New Zealand, South Africa, but definitely England, Australia. Yeah. It's been the private school, public school boy. When you're not from that background, you know, rugby really wasn't your game. And we were forced to play it at school. And I played with some exceptional players. Like we had three Aboriginal boys called the Ellers that basically changed the game in Australia for a period of time. In what way? They just had this electricity about them. They were like three Messies playing together. Right. You know, they'd pass the ball and another one had come and, and they were just brilliant. They played right up against the defence line and they were exceptional. So I, I saw what the best was. Um, and that, that allowed me to be better. And right. it also allowed me to see what the game was capable of, of being. And that's probably, you know, when I look at, at coaching failures I've had, mm -hmm. it's always because I've probably aimed too high sometimes. Right. Yeah. When you've got an average group of players, then sometimes you just got to compromise. And, and that's probably the weakness I've had that I never want to compromise like that. I always want them to play well. Yeah. Like, you know, if I've watched a bit of Premier League and you see some of those sides down the bottom, you know, their big thing is not, not to get beaten, mm. you know, so they play not to get beaten. I could never catch like that. Right. Like I, I've always, it always, one of the l things I'd really love to have a go at is catching a Premier League, Premier League team where you just got to keep up But because that's it, a challenge. Do you, do you think that's why it's not, talk about, not about co coaching a Premier League side? but the idea of not being prepared to compromise because life is always a series of compromises and sometimes you have to cut your cloth accordingly, don't you? And there's, there's a great nobility in going out on your shield, but there's also a reality of you can't turn a silk purse or sales ear into a silk purse. So do you think that's a strength to sort of have these ideals and philosophies? Because like, going to your Premier League example, Vincent Company with Burnley, if he doesn't change the way Burnley play, they're going to get relegated because yeah. they're going to have to adapt to the circumstances, build up their strength, be more, be more established in the Premier League, and then they can have these grandiose ideas of how they want to play. But there is a reality that... that are you an idealist in that respect? Uh, in some ways. And, and probably yeah, one of the most fascinating experiences I had was coaching England. Like right. coming and coaching England, and I had to play a completely different way. You know, almost the opposite of what I, I think the game should be played. But I've, I've found some some beauty in that game. Right. Um, you know, because the English generally in rugby have been really good at, and, and, and up until lately in cricket, they're always about containment, always about stopping the opposition to play, yeah, yeah. then we'll play. Similar in football, by the way. And then we'll play off the yeah. back of that. Right. And that was the way England played rugby, and, and we were able to do that really well. And then for a period we were able to add this cut and thrust to it. That, that made them such a good team. But then to then I wanted the team to play better than that. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get into trouble. And I would rather I'd rather fail doing that than than settle for just the average. Mm. As a coach, what kind of coach do you think you are? Strategically I'm pretty good. Although again I can I can fall in the trap of picking too much for potential rather than just right. sticking with what's there. Yeah, and I had a coach called Bob DeWoe who won the 91 World Cup, and he always used to say, always pick a player who's going to be better than the player you got and back that. And mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know... In the that, short term or the long term? In the medium term, right. I'd say. And sometimes, again, that can get you into trouble when you pick a, a talented young player, like a Marcus Smith, mm -hmm. where you try to bring that guy through, and you know you're going to have some ups and downs with him, but you know that if you stay there long enough... You're going to get the rewards. You're going to get the rewards yeah. further down the track. I've got this inherent belief. I had an Australian coach work for my football team and I had businesses in Australia. And without being sycophantic to you, I have this deep-seated admiration of an antipodean outlook. I think it's an indomitable spirit. 
there's a there's a there's a mentality of how do we achieve something rather than how do we be stopped at uh, in terms of using an obstacle as an excuse rather than something you have to get over. Do you think there's a real difference in the makeup of a southern hemisphere mentality and a northern hemisphere mentality? I think it's been interesting going back to Australia because I've seen it change. Like my my generation, we were part of the lucky country. It was a land of opportunity. Yep. You know, go out there and. And, and make your life, there's plenty of opportunity. And now I, f I feel like Australia's are much more happy just to get along uh, rather than that real, let's go Edge, out, yeah. let's go out and get it, let's go and take yeah. this. And I think we've seen that in their sport a little bit mm -hmm. over the last period of time. You've been described in the past, particularly in the media, as, I'm quoting here, enigmatic, abrasive, often sarcastic, occasionally domineering, do you think that's a fair perception of you or, and do you really care what other people think about you? Uh, yeah, no, the older I get, the less I care about what people think. You know, when I look back when I was a young coach, I was so worried about what people thought, whether I was any good. You know, I think there's that Stephen Jobs uh, quote about, you know, when you die, the only thing that really matters is, is what, what you think you've done. Because, you know, and I've been thinking about it a bit because obviously getting towards the end, it doesn't really matter what people think. It no, matters it what it matters what you think. You yeah. know, I am what I am, and and so when I hear that, uh, I think, yeah, there's some truth in that. Um, but does it really matter? Like the only thing that really matters is how I treat people, and that's the only thing I really really care about. Warren Gatland, a rival of yours, an admirer of yours as well, talked about against all odds, sort of coaching methodology. And, and you also went on to talk about stereotypical coaching. I've always, this is you, I've always felt, and maybe I've enjoyed it too, that I've been a bit of an outsider because I'm not the stereotypical rugby coach. What's the stereotypical rugby coach? Well, I think generally being very conservative, uh, going along with tradition. I think, you know, and when I look back, you know, if I look back, historically at my coaching, probably the best periods have been where I have been a, an out-and-out out outsider, where I've gone to a place like England as mm. an Australian. And I think the longer you stay in any place, the more the more almost constricted you get by the thoughts. Like if we were to do another session next week, yep. then probably I'm going to think like you a little bit more. Right. Because you get affected by your environment. And I think I've always been best at coaching when I'm not affected by the environment. I just get on with it and I can see things more clearly for what they are. Did you relish being an outsider in the English game? Oh, I loved it, mate. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Why? Uh, because I was I, I could be objective. I wasn't tied tied by any tradition, wasn't tied by, you know, this school or this university or this old boy. I could just do what I thought was right and and, you know, probably the longer I stayed, the less I got like that um, because you do get affected. Right. You know, what do they say? 85% of your behaviour is affected by the environment. I think that's really true. And when you come in as an outsider, that's probably, that percentage is quite low and that's probably when you're at your best or certainly for me. Do you think um, coaching is a democracy? I'll tell you why I ask. Because I was sat here listening to Lawrence Delalio and... I, I like to lay I like to lay some claim, by the way, for England winning the two thousand and three right. World Cup because I owned a nutrition firm that looked after the England rugby team were in the dressing room. So I lay claim to some of the reasons why they won the World Cup. Well. I'll take it where I can get it. I won bugger all in football. Um, um, but he talks about a culture where the players were at a large degree of the intellectual capital debated what their experiences were likely to be and had very, very strong voices about what they wanted and what they didn't want. And that formula developed into a 2003 England World Cup winning rugby side. I don't get the impression that that's the sort of mentality you would ascribe to, but do you believe in a style of coaching and leadership that's democratic or are you very dictatorial in your approach. Basically, whenever you get a team, if you imagine you're at, at midday, you get the team at midday. Yeah. You've got about three years to get to midnight. Okay. Right? And that's when the team should be really humming. Yeah. You know, but generally speaking. And by the t at midday, you want to be at the front of the room 
guiding, directing, cajoling, setting the standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By midnight, you want to be at the back of the room admiring what you've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's you know, to me, there's a there's a progression from a almost smiling dictator to a to a fantastic democracy, right. and that's what that's how teams. That's the evolution of a team that you want. But do you think you achieved that? Uh, with certain teams, I have, yeah. yeah, yeah, such as definitely England, yeah, um, yeah. By two thousand nineteen, we had a strong leadership group. Owen Farrell, mm -hmm. yeah, what a fantastic competitor. Yeah, uh, good people around him. I had it with the Brumbies. Uh, definitely had it with Japan, two thousand fifteen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely had that. I'm going to come to Owen Farrell in a minute, and your and your relationship with him, but I'm going to pick you up on that point because. I read some of the quotes of very influential players that played for you that seem to have a, an issue with you and your style of coaching, because your style of coaching is to, from what I've just ascertained, is to give them the reasons why, to give them the direction, to install the disciplines, and then allow them to express themselves once they've earned that right to do that. Yeah. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, very So good. When, when you see people like Dylan Hartley first, I went through a phase of dreading going away. And I know other England players felt similarly. We were bonded by the ripples in Eddie's character, constrained by the ludicrous convention that athletes like Victorian's children should be seen and not heard. Well, someone's written that for Dylan. <laughs> not capable of saying it himself. Right? <laughs> uh, look, besides the fact that someone <laughs> scripted it for him. Yeah, he's obviously got a good script writer because Dylan couldn't write that. But uh, look, yeah, England, when I took over England... Well, here's down. another one while, you, while, you're, while, you, while, we, while we're ruminating on it. The England team is an environment of fear. Players are scared of... Make, this is Mike Brown. Players are scared of making mistakes. And I believe that reflects with what is delivered on the pitch. Eddie's the leader of that environment. So he's saying you engender a fear culture. Um, Courtney Laws was talking about the obvious need for things to change. We hadn't got the right culture off the field. It's about making boys more comfortable in camp. So there's implicit and implied criticism there yeah, from no. these guys about a culture. But what do you make to these analyses, these observations on you? Uh, well, you think they're fair? They can be fair. Um, but we took an England side that didn't come out of their pools in 2015 at, the, yep. at their home World Cup. Yep. They had 18 wins in a row, got to number one in the world in 2019. With all those things being bad, I don't think so. Yeah, no. and, and, and you know, some of that, obviously some of it can be true at times. You know, teams go, teams are absolutely dynamic and you go through stages. And, you know, whenever a player gets dropped, I, I never can really take anything they say too seriously no. because there's an emotion of them being dropped. You know, you've told them you love them and then all of a sudden you don't love them, you drop them and, and they're never going to say good things about you. Owen Farrell, Ferguson, I think, Alex Ferguson in football terms, had an embodiment of him on the pitch in, in Roy Keane. Was that something that you looked for in your captain? And was that something that Owen Farrell exhibited? Yeah, oh, definitely. And if you go back, you know, the first captain I made for England was Dylan, yep. uh, who was Your a bit mate, of a yeah. larrikin. And that's what the team needed at that time. They needed to come out of themselves because they'd been through a bad period of time and were very, very uh, respectful and and nice team. Yep. And they needed Dylan to come in and give it a bit of life, which yep. he did. And then Owen came on the back of that much more serious, tougher, really good on the field, not as good off the field as Dylan, um, right. but a great captain. Off the field in what way? Generally in rugby, you've got two types of leaders. And if you get, if you get the same leader in one, then you've got, you've got the jackpot. Right. Yeah, you've got people who are really tough on standards on the field. Yeah. And those guys are obsessed by performance. And then you've got the other other leaders who can be better at at bringing the guys together off the, off the field. Yeah. And if you can get those two together, then you've got the perfect combination. And when we had Dylan and Owen um, as captain and vice captain, that was a great combination. I was reading just this morning a, a book about Liverpool and they were talking about Henderson. 
Yeah. You know, Henderson's just got, well, he used to have so much energy and he just drive the team, you know, in that hard pressing way. And, and, you know, you need that combination. You need the softer touch and the harder touch. Did you think as an overriding perspective on England players, players lack the ability to think for themselves and take ownership? I think increasingly around the world, players in rugby have become like that. Yeah, you know, I get criticised for being too domineering. Right. But I came from an era where rugby was a player's game. Yeah, you know, the coach was the old Shane Warne quote, the coach is something that takes you to the ground. Yeah. You travel into the ground. Rugby is such a game where there is so much decision making that a coach can only do so much to prepare them for that. But once right. they get on the field, they've got to be able to make the decisions themselves. And I think in rugby, we've, we're, coaching-wise, we've, we've over-organised the players and under-coached the players. That we've given them, given them organisational structures to play by. Right. But the coaching comes in, in giving them the framework to be able to make, their, make decisions better. And I, and I think rugby's going to go through an, another, another almost change over the next period of time where coaching goes back to, to less organisation and more about giving players a, just a framework in which to make the decisions. So that's kind of in line then with the the observations I made about what Lawrence said to me um, because he, uh, paraphrasing him, talked about listening to coaches and then thinking, if I'm not wrong, I'm the one going out on the pitch back to get my face smashed in. I should know what, need to, what I need to do when I need to do it. So, so my initial perception that you might find that a challenging thought process from a player isn't at all the case, no, is it? Not at all. Man. No, it's the polar opposite, isn't it? hundred percent. Mm. But you've got to have players who are capable yeah. of doing that. Yeah. And we had a situation in the, in the World Cup recently. You know, we wanted to play a certain way against Fiji and we played the first play of the game where we played a certain way, played in tight, and the, and the space was out wide. And we sent the message down to the players, you know, take the space out wide. Yeah. And after the game, one of the senior players came up to me and said, were we allowed to take that space out wide? Yeah, and that's almost the opposite of what you want what from you your want, players. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want them on the field yeah. to be saying, right, this is, this is on, let's yeah. go, let's yeah. go, let's back ourselves, yeah. let's do it. And, and to me, that means that in reality, we haven't coached them well enough to yeah. understand that. How good is Farrell in terms of his playing ability? Well, if you just look at what he's done in the game, you know, he's won every trophy apart from the World Cup. And he's been to a final, he's been to a, he's in a playoff for third, he's the highest point scorer for England now. You know, he's been a colossal in the game. But because he's, you know, he's quite a unemotional, you know, probably seen as quite a rigid player, he doesn't get the praise that uh, he should get. You know, Probably the most I've ever seen him be a little bit emotional was after the game, after the semi-final, he said, I'm so proud to be English. And you could really feel mm. his, yeah, sort of, yeah. his passion and yeah. his pride there. And you don't often feel that with Owen. So I think he gets a bit of a hard run. You think there's a lack of appreciation for him? 100%. Yeah. 100%. What did you make of the, because um, it happened to you, a lot of people booed you, but do you think you deserve that because of all the things that you've achieved? all the places and spaces and the challenges in life that you've overcome to put yourself in a position where you've coached elite rugby teams and your credentials are there to be seen, does it not offend you or irritate you or think that that's not what I'm entitled to when you saw or heard people booing you? There's two things I thought. Firstly, I must thought I must have an English flag tattoo on the back of my head. <laughs> so the French still, still didn't like me as English coach. But the other thing I thought, well, well, maybe it's a sign of respect that they're fearful yeah. of what, what could happen, right. which turned out to be not the right sort of feeling. But mm. uh, yeah, I, I think it's all part of the game. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah. The crowds in, in France, you know, we had a terrible World Cup and mm -hmm. the, the environment at the games were unbelievable. They were all, you know, and, and they reminded me like – one of the best games I've ever been to in my life was was Liverpool and Barcelona in that Champions Cup, mm. in uh, at the at the the one that Liverpool came yeah, back from, yeah, 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 yeah. And the atmosphere there, and yeah. we've seen that at the World Cup games. This almost like unrugby like yeah. atmosphere, and I think it's been lively. It's been it's been great for yeah. the players. So you know, I don't have a big problem with it, mate. What's your hopes for for Marcus Smith? 
do you think he's eventually good enough to step in? To, uh, in fact, I, by the way, I thought you were absolutely spot on when you made these observations about players and distractions. You you said something through the media or in a press conference, and you got some flack for it, which I thought was absolute bullshit because you were calling it for what it was. I made the same observations in the media about Emma Raducanu being distracted, being on red carpet. You've won one Grand Slam. Fantastic. Well done. We're all admiring of it, but you need to be focusing on the future because that's now done. And you made this observation about the distractions for players. And what's your reaction to some of the, the media criticisms that you got for being sexist and misogynistic because you made an observation about a female tennis player? Yeah, well... Uh you know, firstly, if we go to Emma, it wasn't about her. I know it was about the process of young players in Correct. England. Correct. I know that, yeah. and, and I think they're put at risk here. You know, someone like a Marcus comes through, he's he's reasonably good at club level, yeah. but they make him out to be a superstar. Yeah. yeah. And he's not a superstar yet. Yeah. He's a he's a promising young player. And and if you look at where Rich Mwanga is for the All Blacks By that now, you mean the media, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's 29 now, played 60 tests. Is and he's that brilliant, instinctive sort of player. Mm -hmm. And those, at test match level, those brilliant, instinctive players, particularly when they're in a high decision-making position, they take time to mature. But do you think he's got what it takes to get to where potentially his talent and the opportunity may, may lead him? Well, I think we'll see over the next two years, mate. And I think these will almost be the, the most formative years of his life, of his rugby mm -hmm. life anyway. If he can get stick at it, keep playing for his club, keep playing for England, because yeah, Owen's on the, getting to the other side, and there's going to be an opportunity for him to step up, and I think he can be a really, really good Test player. What's your overriding thought processes of your experiences in English rugby? Ah, oh, I loved it, mate. Yeah, I, I loved the players. I enjoyed the the media jousting here because the media in for rugby in England is probably the the highest it is in the world, the most intense it is in the world. Is it? So yeah, they've always got it. They're always more than New Zealand, bigger than New Zealand, much yeah. bigger, and they they're always beating the drum about what they want. Yeah, and you know there was a challenge to to get a different story out. The players were fantastic, so I've only got good memories. You know, and I knew the team had to change to win the World Cup, this World Cup. Yeah. And, and there hasn't been enough change. And part of that is you get, you know, sometimes you get to a sticky period with a team where you've got your experienced players, you've got young players, and the young players just aren't consistent enough. And you get a little bit of gap in performance, and, and that's what we've seen with England. When you came to England, obviously the 2003 final, the loss in that, how much did that affect you? Not because it's England, but because it's in Australia. You, it's your country. Did that have a profound effect on you losing that final? Well, I woke up last night, um, reasonably early, and I was, yeah, it's one of those things where you, you know, you're looking at the, at the ceiling, and I was thinking about post 2003. I had a couple of my worst coaching years, and now post 2019, it's been the same. And then I was trying to link it together. Why? And I think one of the reasons is post a, a World Cup final defeat, it's it's pretty gut gut yeah, wrenching. Gut wrenching, yeah. And I think what you tend to do is want to win more, and when you want to win more, you coach badly. Yeah, and if you and I was thinking about if you're Manchester City, all you buy is Harland, don't you? Yeah. And you know you you jump three years straight away, but most of us can't do that, and so. Yeah, well, when I look back at 2003, I coached really badly for a couple of years and, and probably I look back now, post-2019, I've done the same thing, you know, being absolutely as honest as I can with myself. Expand upon that. Well, that I've, I've been more focused about trying to win, trying to create a winning team rather than just allowing the process to unfold because sometimes you can't hurry But you're in the business of winning, mate, aren't you? Yeah, I know, but sometimes, sometimes you can't hurry that up. Like going to Australia to do a three-month campaign and saying you can win the World Cup is crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Why'd you say that? Because you've got to you've got to you've got to set some hope. But you're setting yourself up for a fall. Yeah, aren't you? but that's all right. I can handle that. I'm not too worried about myself here. But what I wanted to do was build the players up and make them think they could do something special. 
And and if you can get people to think they can do something special, you've got a chance of them doing something special. That's a contradiction, Eddie, because you talk to me about... There's a contradiction in everything. Yeah, <laughs> about the fact that you wanted to play in a certain way and that you weren't prepared to compromise. Um, and sometimes you, you that was to your own detriment. You had a belief system, yet you're creating a myth that you think is an opportunity to shoot for the stars. But is it not potentially a, a culture where you're going to be fought with disappointment and perhaps take the players on a disappointing journey? Because the shellacking that you have taken from the Australian public um, about the performance in the most recent tournament yeah. has put you in a way of a little bit of a shitstorm. That yeah. can't be a great feeling to be around and it can't be a great feeling for the players to be around. I think what you're saying is right. But also saying that the basis of this team that we've just taken to the World Cup, yeah. if they keep working hard, if they keep working with the determination that they've shown at this World Cup and keep showing up, they're going to be a bloody good team. You know, and in four years' time, they'll be a team capable of winning the right. World Cup. Because I think, I think in a lot of times, every team that I've had, got to go through some pain. But sometimes you've got to go looking for the pain. Because yeah. the pain will always find you. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes when you go looking for the pain, you, you find it. That gives you that gives you a opportunity to be able to cope with the pain. Are you going to be in situ to develop this team that you are talking about has the opportunity and the potential to maybe do it with the seeds? Because you played hide and seek with yourself in a press conference with people asking you a question that you didn't seem to want to answer. And obviously the observations were about linking you to the Japan team. Yeah, if if we think that we can keep doing the same thing and get different results, the answer is no. So we, we've got to do things differently. No, but you're already in that camp. You're 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 the architect of this conversation in terms of this direction. You yeah. have a certain viewpoint. But it's going to be yours. There's also an architect of the system. Like, yeah, you know, that's someone taking you out. I'm asking yeah. you because this linking with of you, which you didn't much like and didn't want to answer. And I understand why you didn't want to answer it. You answered, every, answered every, in, in, in every other way possible rather than saying, no, I'm not got any indexing to the Japan job. No, I'm not interested in that job. You just kept on saying, I'm the Australian coach. Do you envisage if you're given the tools to be able to affect the changes that you see as necessities to be able to rebuild this Australian side, that you're going to be the person to be there to do it? If I've got the right tools. Yeah, but if you're given those tools, yeah, 100%. Right? So there's no there's no reason for anyone to be indexing you to the Japan job, then is there? Well, there's no offer from Japan. Right. Let's let's be clear about right. that. There's no offer. There never has been an offer. So where and, did it come from then? Well, I'm always connected to Japan. I've got a Japanese because wife. I'm half Japanese. Yeah. I've caged Japan. The president happens to be a close personal friend of mine who I I cat catch up to regularly you know I, I i work with him i've worked with him for 30 years so yeah there's there's always been this implication because he's become president he want me as a coach mm -hmm. so then there's been the rumors fly around but there's been no job offer there's been nothing at all um my commitment is to australia but australia's got to be committed to me of course yeah yeah of course but as far as that conversation is concerned that's where it is that's and, where it and is. do you expect to be given the tools that you require to be able to facilitate the solutions that you envisage or the outcomes. Well, Simon, you've been an owner, yep. right? So I come in, I say, right, yep. we need this amount of money. But you'd have said that to me before you got the job, right? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And so I've said I'd, that. I would have known what you were going to do. And I, if I did like it, I'd have but, said, no, thanks. But you know, as an owner, yeah. that sometimes the circumstances change, change yeah, right? Yeah. And contradiction is a big part of all of this. Yeah. So... The Australian Rugby Union knows what they've got to do. Yeah. I know what they've got to do. And now it's a matter of whether we can meet. But as far as you taking the job, you were very clear and unequivocal very clear. in what your expectations very were. Clear. And they were very clear and explicit in their understanding. Yeah. So unless they're going to pivot, yeah. right, then you're going to be coaching Australia because they're going to give you the tools that they need, that you need more importantly. That's a very good summary. Good, good. Go back to England. You come in to the England job um, on the back of a disappointing home World Cup. I think certain people thought it was a coup to get you. Maybe not your mate, Clive Woodward, but lots of other people thought it. What did you think of the opportunity? What was, what was it about England, you coming in at that point, 
probably at one of their lowest points for, for a period of time that really attracted you to the, to the opportunity? Yeah, it was, it was a funny situation. I just coached Japan and yep. I just, I'd re-signed for Japan for another four years yep. and decided I couldn't do it. Why? Because uh, I felt like I'd given everything I had for those four years and I signed for the Stormers in South Africa because yep. I wanted to do something different. And this is probably a bit of my country nature that I wanted to go to South Africa because no Australian coach has ever Right. Won anything in South Africa. Like it'd be like going to Manchester United, you know, rich history, winning but not winning now. Signed for them. And then during the World Cup, I obviously watched England play because we had Steve Borthwick, who's the current England coach. He was assistant at Japan. Mm -hmm. I always thought, shit, they got some good players here. Yep. But something's just not right with them. Mm -hmm. And then when I got a phone call to say, are you interested in coaching them? I thought, well, I might as well have a chat. And then, you know, I got offered the job a day later. I mean, your tenure in England, obviously, you have the highest win percentage record, marginally over Jack Rowell. You go a year unbeaten, which is one of the only few teams in the world to do that. You lead England to their first Grand Slam in 13 years. And you take them to the World Cup final in 2019. But in the semi-final, you produce a, a result that is the stuff of legend in some people's minds. Tell us about that. Tell us about what that was like to create that environment where the players have a stage to coin the Jake Lamotto expression that a ball can rage on. We always knew we were going to play the All Blacks in the semi-final. Yeah. And the year before, we led them 15-0 at halftime, got beaten 16-15, which gave us enough clues about what we could do with them. The, the big thing was to give the players the belief of what they could do. So I thought during the week we might have a bit of theatre. So when we were in Miyazaki, this tiny little town in uh, the bottom of Kyushu, and I, I went shopping with the interpreter and she took me to this little shop and it was like one window and you could only fit one person in the, in the shop. It was so small. Anyway, it had this collection of samurai swords everywhere. So right. I, bought, I bought this samurai sword and it had the inscription and all the paperwork of when it was made and it was about 100 years old. It wasn't cheap but it was sharp and it was right. fierce. And so I thought I was, the previous night I, I got some kiwi fruit in the room and was cutting it up and it was, you know, it was making a bit of a splash. So I thought this is the way that, you know, just to get it in their head, this is what we're going to do to them. So we got some kiwi fruit there, got the samurai swords, chopping it in half, played around a bit with it. And then then we had the, the idea before the kickoff when they're doing the haka to create a circle around them. But I said, Darwin, like, this is the idea I've got, mate, but you take it away and see what you think. So I took it away, and they ended up coming up with the V formation, which just added to the theatre, and it was all about, right, we're after them, we're going after them, and they played like that. They were absolutely superb. But do you look at that and think that semi-final, because of the level I got them to, it was difficult to get them to their level again when the final came around? Well... I think that's right. And, and we also had before before New Zealand, the quarterfinal Australia. Mm -hmm. So we had to be up for that. So we had two really big games in a row. And again, when I look back, I take responsibility and not bring him down enough. Like if I, if I had the week again, right, we probably just... Managed their emotions. Should have taken him right down yeah. and, and maybe I would have taken... So then you could build it back up again. Build it back up again. Right. And I don't think I took it down enough. I thought I did. You know, you think you do. Um, but, you know, hindsight's the greatest coach of all. There was about three or four little things where we just didn't get right. And you, you've only got to be 1% off. And then we had a, a bus trip out there where, you know, logistically England's the best team in the world. I've never met a team that's that more, more organized and we just we got we got that wrong we got into heavy traffic and we got there a little bit late right. so there was a there was a number of little things we didn't get right and and then south africa are on fire we're yeah. slightly off fire yeah they and there's, the, and there's the margin that that's the margin mate. yeah that's the margin when you look at I mean, you've you've had two world cup finals as a head coach and you've had two losses do you think because i'm always a big thing about winners i think a good fight is one you win, not one you put up. And I think there's a difference between a winner and someone that gets close. I think in football terms, 
Maurizio Pochettino is a great manager. I don't think he's an ultimate winner. I think Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp have that gene. With two World Cup finals and two losses, do you think you're a winner? Uh, yeah, because in 2003, I think we played above ourselves. You know, and sometimes, like 2019, we weren't quite there. But, I, you know, I've won enough trophies to suggest that I can win. Yeah. Um, but I've missed out on two big ones. 2003, I thought we played above ourselves. 2019, we played below ourselves. And, you know, I'm still kicking myself. You know, I can recall nearly every every bit of things that maybe I should have got right that I didn't get right. You don't take on England to win the Six Nations. You take on England to win the World Cup. That's what, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So what do you, how do you categorise a winner then? If you perceive yourself as a winner, but in two occasions where you've got to the pinnacle of the sport, it's there, it's in your hands, it's in the team's hands, you're there, you're in the business of winning, yet you don't win. How do you see a winner then? Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that question, but uh, it's a good question. I've never really thought about it like that. Um, I'm not being asked so clever. No, 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 no. At World Cup level, I haven't been able to, to get the win, but at other levels I have. Mm. Um, does that make me... Uh, uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's binary. I don't think yeah, you're a loser. That's yeah, not, it's not yeah. it's not a choice between two yeah. ends of the spectrum. Yeah, but look, in I reckon in the 2019 World Cup, I definitely wasn't as sharp as I could have been. Right. Yeah, and I, I take responsibility for that. How did you take the decision for England to sack you? Oh, I think it was right, mate. In in the end, I I, I had a pretty fair go. It was always going to be a difficult job. Yeah, you know, the easiest thing for me would have been after six years to walk away yeah. with an impeccable record. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to try to do it, and I knew it was going to be difficult because I had to transition yeah. the side. And and the longer I was in the job, the more pressure there was to win well. We, with a I, certain style. Yeah, I remember right. we, we, you know. But you made, don't care about that background noise, though, do you? But but the players do, right? and you've got to take that into consideration. Yeah. And the, the more your players get hammered media-wise, you've got to look after them. And, some, and they listen to it. And I think the reality is, and it's the same in football, I reckon, the more you win, the more you got to, then you've got to win well. It's not good enough just to win. Yeah. You've got to win well. What do you think to that? I, I mean, I think winning is winning. I'm uh, not one of these fannies that thinks you have to. I mean, in an ideal world, if you've got the best players, you play the best way. But you've got what you've got. And if your players are capable of winning and winning is the ultimate outcome. I mean, I don't think there's any nobility in, in playing with a certain style and not winning. Yeah. But you're saying what people want in this entitled society that we have yeah. is not only to win, yeah. but to win in a way that people find acceptable. Yeah. Well, in, two, manner. in 2020, we won the Six Nations and we won the Nations Cup. Yeah. We won both of those. So we won two trophies in two, 2020 and we got pillared, mate. Right. Because we played a high-kicking game which is in rugby, people hate to hear it, mm -hmm. but is the most successful game. And we were doing that brilliantly. But the players also, the players, you know, the players want to play more when they win. Yeah. They want to play more. And the same, it's exactly the same in football. Yeah. You got to play better. And then then you then you, you your task as a coach is to remould the team to still have that toughness about it but then be able to add the edge. And sometimes it might be just adding one X-factor player. But mm -hmm. At international level, we don't buy that player. That player's got to come through. And for me, that was Marcus Smith. Yeah, that right. was the guy I was backing that it gives that bit of X-factor. Right. And, and he had his moments, but he just wasn't consistent enough. Do you, do you think, I mean, there's an allegation that's made or an association with potentially you staying too long in posts? One of the analogies I would make is this sort of churn and burn mentality that you might have because I relate that to the amount of coaches that you've had and the observations that people have made about the fact that you are very demanding, very expectant, um, have very rigid disciplines and standards that you expect from people and that can create to some extent a churn and burn mentality. Do you think that's a fair observation? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. do? Because I don't think it's for everyone, mate. Yeah, you know, high performance is is the most bizarre environment of yeah. all. And it's not for everyone. Um, and and maybe, you know, one of the things I, I was definitely guilty of when I was younger 
was being intolerant of coaches, particularly that didn't work hard enough. Yeah. Now you don't tend to find that too much today. Right. But I think over the, over the last period of time, I've become much more tolerant and, and better in that area. Well, you say it yourself, don't you? In your own book, yeah. you say, I need to work constantly on becoming less blunt in my engagement with other coaches. I can express myself too directly. If you're too blunt in today's environment, you can cause stress. I think the key sentence is in today's environment because I'm actually with you. I think that you should expect people to work very hard, to be very disciplined. I don't think that should be something that's a bonus. You know, people say, oh, he did well today. Well, I didn't fucking pay him to come in and do badly, (laughs) did I? So I'm in your camp, but it's used as a method to diminish you and I don't think it's something that you should have to adjust. But I guess we're what we where where you and I will see it the same way, but have to accept that the society has moved on, is that society has a different way of looking at things. And I don't think it's for the better. Do you agree with me? Yeah, no, in, in principle, yes. What's this problem with you and Clive Woodward? Why is he always on your back? Ah uh, what he, he seems to take every opportunity to delight. Yeah. And I I, I, I find him an interesting character. I, I think he landed in football thinking he knew everything about everything and everybody sort of went, you know, nothing about nothing and the great way he did a bit of World Cup. But he seems to have this metaphorical hard-on for you where every opportunity he gets to decry, ridicule, parody or criticise what you do, even from the, the, the sort of underlying observation which is England thought they got a coup when they got Eddie Jones in 2015. What's that about? Ah... Uh... Well, he hasn't coached for a long time, mate. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. He hasn't coached since 2005. Um, yeah, he's been on the outside. We we had a battle when I was England, uh, Australian coach in England. We were at each other a bit, but in a, in a fair-natured way. And then in 2019, you know, post the World Cup, I found his comments to be quite disrespectful. Like, mm-hmm. we got beaten. Like I accept yep. that, and I got some things yep. wrong, but shit, we put on a show for the for people. Yeah, you know, we played some good rugby, and yeah, we can be criticised for not winning the World Cup final, but we didn't deserve to be criticised as much as mm-hmm. as as he. And then he went behind my back to the CEO to try to get a position in the football union. Right, and I told him where to go basically and since then he's been on my case right so who cares mate we'll go back to clive in a second because he comments on the 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 balthwick regime and the fear culture do you think that there's any genuity or integrity in the observations that you created a culture of fear a couple of players said that you did because fear I, i think fear is a useful weapon I think if you can get fear and respect in the same conversation and you've got a winning formula and people would often say to me, which would you rather have fear or respect? And I would say sometimes fear because it lasts longer, but fear can also be debilitating. It can repress people and it can um, turn them into uh, someone that isn't capable of expressing themselves. Do you think there's any truth in the culture, cultural observations about you creating a culture of fear within the confines of the England rugby setup. Well, I think, you know, generally, generally any sort of culture, it's a balance between support and challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And challenge can be, can be seen as fear, but I think we got the balance right most of the time. Like there could have been times where, where it could have been one way or the other, you know, and, and you always, as a coach, you're always looking to get that balance right. Yeah. You know, and, and it changes all the time. It's dynamic. I'd struggle to I'd struggle to agree with that observation. Do you think you've got that balance wrong at times? Uh definitely got it wrong, mate. Mm. Definitely got it wrong. Because I, I think on on the balance, I've got it right. Because I'm reading a quote here that some people would say was disrespectful. I don't think it is, but, but that's my position. But I want to hear your your position is. This is an exchange between you and Marlon Yard, where you say, "How are you feeling, mate?" And he says, "Oh, I'm a bit tired." Fuck off, mate. If you're tired, fuck off. I don't want tired players here. What's your version behind that that nice little quote that I brought out that someone's put on my little pad to read to you? Uh, well, it's probably true. Uh, right. I used to remember I nicknamed him the fox. Right. Because he used to go missing with the foxes in the bush right. okay. at training sometimes. Right. He just didn't work hard enough. Is that a sort of interaction that you'd have 
with players on a frequent basis if they didn't tell you something that you wanted to hear? Well, that's a one-off conversation. Yeah, no, I'm asking that. And, and then there's, yeah. there's, there would be other examples of yeah. conversations saying, right, I've had a look at your well-being today. You look a bit tired, so you better have a rest today. Yeah. So, you know, no one's treated equally. Everyone's, I think I treat people individually yeah. how they need to be treated. And I think, again, on the surface or, or with the balance, I'd get most of that right, but I'd certainly got some of them wrong, like you do. For each player you're trying to pick up, what do they need at that time? It's not what I need, it's what do they need to be better. Yeah. Yeah, because what you're always trying to deal with with every player is their fear. What are they frightened of? Yeah, what is the player frightened of? And how do you and, eliminate that? And how you eliminate that? How do you make them stronger about that? Um, you know, and some players are, are frightened about being their best. Mm. You know, there's a lot of players that are frightened. And sometimes you've got to find, give them a way to, to, to be more confident, yeah. Yeah. find belief in themselves. And with Marlon Yard, yeah, he's a good example that for a couple of years, we got some really good rugby out of him. Yeah. Steve Borthwick, when he took over the job, and I want to see what your reaction to this quote is because it's it's one of those typical quotes that people do, I think, when they take over a job, right? When I looked at the team in the autumn, when I got all the data for the team, we weren't good at anything. Now, that's kind of throwing a great big custard pie in your direction, isn't it? Because that's your team, that's your culture, that's your outlook, that's your data that he's looking at. What do you make to that? Oh, he's right. Yeah, that was when... We were trying to remodel the team, right. trying to find a better way. Brought Marcus into the team, tried to change the team up, brought some young players in. But that's not good, Eddie, is it? No. You can't no. have a fucking summation. But some, but you can't have a summation at the England coach, you're managing one of the elite jobs, but some, and, you, and they're good at nothing. But sometimes you go through that, mate, to so get to Are you where saying you, it's just a matter of timing? Yeah, to get to where you need right. to go. There's not a team, again, that I don't think I've had that hasn't been like that at some stage. Do, so you are, you are you really saying to me, that you have to accept regression is the price of progression. Not always, but sometimes, definitely. In the big jobs, you can't get away with that in the big jobs, can you? Ah. Uh, you can't take, the next guy that comes into Man City for a football parlance can't turn around to me and say, well, you know, in order for us to maintain the standards that Pep Guardiola put into place, everyone's got a price into the thinking. We're going to go backwards a few steps for a while. Yeah, but Man City it, can say, I want this player, I want this oh, player, I want this player. They're not fucking Man City. Right. Then, right? Someone else right. is doing really well that doesn't have all the Middle Eastern right. money behind them. So, so Manchester United can't do that. Financial fair play right. governs these guys. They've still got to behave and, in a certain way. And that's one of the differences at international rugby. Like sometimes, sometimes... You can go backwards a little bit to go forwards. Right. And and you have to accept that's that's part of the case. And if it goes on for too long, you don't stay there? No. If you go back to autumn, we beat Argentina in the first game, and I'm probably still the England coach. Yeah. Like, that's the reality. Yeah. Yeah, and we get beaten by a point or something, whatever it was. Yeah, and so these are the fine margins we're talking to. But what he's saying is 100% right, and I don't disagree with that, that we were trying to find a new way to play for the team. Mm -hmm. And at international level, that's sometimes difficult. What do you make of what Borthwick's done so far? Uh, well, he's just wound back the clock and done it really well. Yeah. Really well. But he's got old team, uh, played old England rugby, and they've yeah. played it really well. And he's done well. So what do you think his challenge is? Because ultimately, that's by your logic, that's got to change because that's not going to last very long. Well, I think they've, they've, you know, they've got to a, a semi-final. Yeah. They've probably got maybe... I don't know, you look at that squad and probably there's there's a third of that squad's going to drop out now. And so the, the big challenge for Steve now is to regenerate. And, and are the younger players coming through in England? And that's not something he controls. It's back to that quote. I remember Arsene Wenger, they once said to him, uh, you know, would you be a candidate for the England football job? He said, no. He said, because we don't control the talent coming through. Mm. Yeah, and that's one of the that's one of the fun things of international coaching is that you don't control the talent coming through. So you've got to make do with what you've got. Right. And and, and improve and, it. Yeah, and improve it. Yeah. And then sometimes find a way to... And when you've got to change the playing style, that makes it even more difficult. You made some observations that sort of, I suppose, hastened the departure in certain people's minds about, the, again, your favourite subject, private schools. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I reckon I, this got me in the most trouble, mate. But I think it was, <laughs> I think it was right. I remember talking about it going, well, if you've all you've got is a background of privilege, 
you live in a very rarefied world where you don't have to overcome adversity. You don't know what it's like to have to scrap around in life. You're going to have a certain set of characteristics. But this lit a shitstorm underneath you, didn't it? Did you say it for that reason? Because it's you must have known what you were saying. You must have known that you're kind of cocking a schnook at the establishment, at the fabric of English rugby. Or were, or were you imparting wisdom because you wanted to infect change? What were you trying to achieve in making this obs- in making this observation? Well, I believed in it. That's the first thing. Yeah. And I thought it was important to say. Did no you one... know it was like that before you took the England manager's job? Yeah. So, you, so you've been in situ now for five or six years and yeah. you've known it and that's the but, reality of the circumstances. But, but that doesn't mean it can't change. Yeah, and no. I think for English rugby to be successful sustainably successful, they have to widen the pool of recruitment. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like any any team like Crystal Palace, if you bring the best, if you get the best talent you can, you develop it, you retain it, you optimise it, then you've got a chance of winning. And if I think England have, have survived on a certain system and they've done quite well, but I think it's time that they looked look past that and, and broaden the system. And that takes change, mate. And people in people in rugby and people in most sports don't like change. Mm. People don't want to no, hear I change. No, I know because I I I remember you saying it, and I remember thinking, well, I don't materially see what's fundamentally wrong about what he said. But were you surprised with the reaction that you got? Because people said, the, I think the the perception that people had was, you're just signing your exit papers, and you're doing it with a flourish. <laughs> It was a good flourish, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, it reminded me of Nick Mallett, uh, who won 18 tests. I think he's he holds the equal number of consecutive wins with South Africa. Mm-hmm. And he made a comment about ticket prices and got sacked. Right. And 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 I reckon, you know, if if you're my owner and I'm butting heads with you, yep. and there'll be certain stages where we're not going as well and I'll say something and that'll be the opportunity to get you. And And maybe it's time to go then anyway. Would you have taken yourself out of the England job? No, because I wanted to go through the World Cup. Like I, I Even though you now, with the benefit of retrospect, look at it and go, no, no, mate, that was the right thing to have done. So that means you must have been the wrong person to be in that job. No. I'm just saying, it's only yeah. what you said. Yeah. You said, yeah, it was the right thing. I said, were you disappointed they sacked you? You said, no, it was the right thing for them to have done. Well, in the end, I probably wore out the... The welcome mat. Yeah, you know, I wasn't. I I couldn't beat South Africa. Yeah, you know, the end result we got beaten by South Africa badly. I had a number of goes. We still hadn't improved from 2009. And I remember when home, my my wife said, "I said, oh, I think I think things are going to be not good here." And she said, "Well, you deserve it." She said, "You had a go. You haven't beaten <laughs> yeah. South Africa." And yeah, you know, I yeah. thought that was fair enough. And yeah. yeah, and then I'd been agitating in other areas for change, mm-hmm. and. I did see, I think, that England are now moving to some central contracts, which was right. which was part of the agitation. Yeah, you know, sometimes you do something that you, that makes a change and you don't get rewarded for that personally, but that's part of life, mate. When you look back on your career, how would you describe it and how would you mark it if you were being objective about yourself, if you possibly, it's difficult to be objective about oneself, yeah. but I think you're quite balanced in that view. Well, well I think... Yeah, you know, if you look at where I came from, it, it says to anyone, if you're prepared to to learn the game, work hard, you can go anywhere in the world. Like, you know, I'm sixty three now. I'm I'm still I'm still coaching. I'm still doing what I wanted to do when I was thirty, you know, get out there, a pair of shorts, whistle and love it. Love the game. Uh so firstly I I'd say I'd be remembered for loving the game. Secondly, I'd be remembered for for some of the the games my teams have played that have have taken rugby to a new level. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, I'd be probably remembered as a bit of a buffet at some stages. You know, taking on fights I shouldn't have taken on, or or just being too too belligerent in certain areas. But that's all right. Two out of three is not bad. Hope. No, I think that's pretty <laughs> fair, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, do you think you're misunderstood? Do you think people get you? Do you think they realise that sometimes you're inhabiting? a role and a personality to be able to achieve an outcome, whether it's playing hide and seek with the media or whether it's stoking the bear or whether it's ignoring background noise from 
from those that are your detractors like the Woodwards of the world. How would you answer that question? A bloke came up to me today in Kensington, English guy, and he came up and he said, I just want to thank you because that 2019 semi-final yeah. was the best game I've seen. So if people remember you like that, you know, that just come off the street and say that, then you've given them some some joy. And I'd, I'd like to think, you know, there's been a lot of players that have improved under my coaching. And there's been a lot of teams that have improved under my coaching and played some, some really good rugby. And I think, again, you know, it gives everyone a... a the hope that you can go anywhere in the world mm. and, and do something in rugby. If there's one thing left for you to do in rugby, what is it? Play the perfect game. Win the World <laughs> Cup, Eddie. Win the World Cup. Look, look, that is, that is, but I've probably been too obsessed with that. And when I, I go back again, I think that's probably been the times where I've coached the worst. I want my team to play a game where, shit, imagine you go out from the first minute and you just got the opposition under pressure. Yeah. All you see is this. And the last minute of the game, all you see is that. Yeah. yeah but when, ideally in a World Cup final. In a World Cup final, that'd be even better, mate. How good would that be? <laughs> Eddie, very much enjoyed it today. Thanks, Thank so. you for so much, Frank. Good stuff. Thanks. Upfront with me, Simon Jordan, is brought to you by William Hill. Future episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly.